This morning, our scripture reading comes from the book of Proverbs. We'll be reading some select verses from chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. People curse those who hoard their grain, but they bless the one who sells in time of need. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. The poor is disliked even by his neighbors, but the rich has many friends. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but the one who is generous to the needy honors him. This is God's word. We've been uh, looking at the book of Proverbs in the summer to be thoughtful about how to be people of wisdom. And we've been talking about how from a biblical point of view, we can't be people of wisdom unless we're first people of worship. Ultimately, that at the hierarchy of human existence is not the intellect, but the appetite. And so the question for the Christian is, what do I love most? What am I driven towards? What are my proclivities and my desires? And what is attractive to me? And if those appetites are uh, congruent with the things that God loves, we will be people of wisdom. But as our worship is wayward, if our appetites are wayward, if our inclinations and thought processes are wayward, inasmuch as they're incongruent with the heart of God, we can't be people of wisdom. The gospel message, the Christian message, is that we are saved by God's grace alone. And because that is true, from the scandal of that undeserved love and grace that we have received in Jesus Christ, because he has fulfilled God's law for us, God's law becomes a guide for us. We desire to live out and walk Uh, very purposefully in the ways that he's laid out before us. And so this morning we want to look at these texts around poverty and around the poor because this is a subject that is close to the heart of God. From Genesis to Revelation, it is going to continually come up, the heart of God towards the broken and the poor. And this morning we want to examine uh, the connection between our justification by grace and the outworkings of that justification in our justice. Justice as God would define uh, justice as we see in the scripture according to his heart. Uh, Years ago when Susan and I were teenagers, I think we were like 18, 19 years old, we were in Detroit at a homeless shelter. And I was sitting down having lunch with this guy and uh, he was just telling me a little bit about himself and he said, uh, man, I really need a haircut. Oh, I really need a haircut. Uh, I've got these clippers in my bag, but I I just got to find someone to give me a haircut. I said, well, I can give you a haircut. I've cut my own hair for forever. So if you're okay with what's up here, uh, you know, I'm happy to help you out. So he says, sure. So I go in the wash and I start cutting his hair. And then his friend comes in. Yo, what's going on? Hey, this guy's giving me a haircut. Oh, can I have? Yeah, sure. I'll give you a haircut. So I gave two or three haircuts in the washroom. All of a sudden, one of the guys comes in and goes, what's going on? He said, hey, this guy's giving out free haircuts. And then all of a sudden I hear in the, uh, out in the kitchen, Yo! There's a white boy in here giving out free haircuts. So that was the first time in my life I'd ever been called a white boy, but in context, totally appropriate. And then, uh, and the next thing I knew, I was cutting hair for hours. And um, many of you who have experienced in one way or another of 
being with those who are in need, whether they're, whether they're homeless or they're on the brink of, the brink of poverty um, and maybe availing themselves of some, some, of the, uh, some of the services here in the city, you know that there, there are so many stories of struggle, tremendous uh, reasons why people end up where they are. And so we want to consider this morning um, the heart of God because it, the poor are close to his heart. That's why when the, as soon as the COVID uh, restrictions were released and enabled us to come back down here, in our, in our eldership meeting, the discussion was our number one priority when we get down here is getting back into uh, care for those in need, joining the Ray of Hope teams. Many of you serve on those teams. Uh, many of you are giving generously so we can provide the food to go and to feed them. Priority one. So this morning, let's look at this a little bit. Uh, first, I want us to look at the problem of the poor and the complexity of their condition. And then secondly, the grace of our justification and how it shapes our justice. Now, books have been written on this. So my intent this morning is not to be so shallow as to say nothing. But I'm cognizant of the fact that I need to just say a few things that I hope are very helpful to give you some scriptural um, goalposts through which to think about God's heart and what the scripture says and how we understand from a scriptural point of view, the connection between our justification and God's justice. So throughout scripture, we have got a number of reasons why people fall into poverty. And they're always sort of repeated. One is disasters, whether they're environmental disasters or the disaster of war. The second thing that continually comes up throughout the wisdom literature is personal irresponsibility. We read some of those texts there. They're difficult to read because it says things like, hey, listen, if you're diligent, you're going to do well. And if you're not diligent, you're not going to do well. And that's just how the world works. It's repeated through the scriptures about how from from the point of view of being personally responsible with our time, our resources, our skills, our abilities, um, that we can't cheat the hours. And that if we don't have patterns in our lives of being responsible, that isn't going to end well. And that's just a matter of fact. So that's the second thing that continually shows up uh, in scripture. However, the third thing is the social injustices are a means of poverty. And these social injustices have been around since the ancient world. And that's why they're talked about so um, repeatedly throughout Scripture. And particularly um, in the prophets. Because the people of God who were once oppressed by the time you get to the book of Amos. They're no longer oppressed. They've actually, in a tragic turn of events, become the oppressors. And so then God is calling them out as to the way that they are sort of treating the poor. And it's abhorrent. It's the stench in the heart of God. But the social injustices, if you look at um, uh, chapter 13 and verse 23 for a second, we read that. It says that the fallow ground of the poor, it would yield much fruit, but it is swept away through injustice. The swept away in the Hebrew could also be translated uh, scraped away or shaved away. These people are being fleeced. Uh, I, put, I could have used many texts, but I just put a few to give us a, a window here. But you'll notice that in chapter 11, verse uh, 25 there, it talks about hoarding grain and famine. That's an example of fleecing the poor, where it says, blessed are those that sell their grain in times of need. But what they would do in the ancient world is they knew it's just a matter of time before a plague or a famine comes. So I'm actually not going to sell the grain. I'm going to hoard it. And then you're all going to pay famine pricing. So just benefiting on the benefiting on the tragedy that hits other people's lives. And of course, in the ancient world, you have to remember, everybody was a farmer in the sense that you, you are all living off of your land. 
And so this was sort of this abhorrent injustice uh, whereby you're, you're just waiting for somebody to come on a hard time and taking advantage. And that's just always been the case. There's also an injustice. Uh, it's not a, so- a social construct, but it's just the uh, unfairness, the injustice of suffering and how it hits people's lives. For example, um, those who are born physical inability to work, there's an injustice to that. You didn't do anything to deserve the able body that you enjoy today. Some of you are in tremendous health. You run, you go for 10 kilometer runs just for fun. It's incredible the health that you enjoy. You didn't actually do anything to, to earn that. There's no sort of uh, you know, rhyme or reason for why you're born healthy and somebody else isn't. There's a sort of an injustice there, if I could use that, that, that term. Another example would be of the mental health, where some struggle in just tragic ways. They didn't have anything to do with their mental condition any more than you didn't have anything to do with the fact that you are working on your you know, education, uh, perhaps you're working on your bachelor's, master's, PhDs, so you, perhaps you're uh, not school smart, but you are street smart and you have been very successful and you're enjoying a great vocation, but then there's others who no amount of diligence, no amount of hard working, there's no version of meritocracy that's going to somehow enable them to be able to work and live in this city. They just can't do it. When we were running Camp to Caillou a couple of weeks ago, a man was on a scooter and his scooter, his electric scooter died in front of where we were running Camp to Caillou. And so Susan texts me and she's like, Paul, you got to get down here. There's a guy at the door and, you know, we're taking care of kids and we can't bring him in. I go down and it's very clear immediately that he's got significant mental challenges. So I get him some food, I get him some water, we move him, uh, you know, you got to operate with wisdom, so we got to keep you away from where we're running the camp, because we don't know you, but also we want to care for you, so I'm talking to this guy, I plug his scooter into the, you know, how long do you need to get a charge to get where you're going, and so as I'm having a discussion with him, it just becomes very apparent that he's just uh, got tremendous, tremendous challenges. There's There's a injustice to the brokenness of our world, the reality of humanity. And so all of these things, whether it's a a social construct or a um, personal irresponsibility, some environmental thing is wiped out. There's all these reasons for for poverty that the scripture gives us. And I think we ought to recognize that uh, for many, it's uh, it's not... merely laziness in the sense that they, they could work but they can't work but there's a hopelessness that leads to laziness and it's a bit of a spiral I remember when I was uh, young and I know you think the beginning of the sermon seems quite anti- an- anecdotal we're going somewhere don't worry um, I remember in my early 20s seeing young people who were my age begging on the street and my response to that was always get your game together I'm working hard to make it in this city, and you ought to work hard too. And the Bible says, the hand of the diligent will do well, and slack hand isn't going to go well, and you look like a slacker to me. And that was essentially my theology of poverty and suffering at that time. In a sense, there's truth to the fact that if you're, if you're not diligent, it isn't going to go well for you, and that is true. However, it's to negate the numerous reasons why someone at my age would be at a point in their youth to say, I've given up on life, I've got a cardboard sign and I'm asking for money on the, on the ramp of the expressway. What would have to happen in your life for you to be at that point? I don't know about you, but I have a lot of pride. I would try a thousand things 
before you would find me on the side of the street with the cardboard sign. So that, there was an insensitivity to the, to the pain and the brokenness and the, the myriad of reasons that could lead someone to being in that condition. I had sort of, in my own thinking, I had oversimplified and truncated poverty down to all of the proverbs that kind of sounded like if you're irresponsible, it's game over for you. And that is true. But there's more. And so there is this complexity to the condition of the poor. And um, we can fall into one of two ditches. And I kind of talked about my ditch. You can, you, can, you can sort of refuse to be moved. You can become callous to the poor. We can become sort of angry. But the other ditch is to sort of be crushed with a, with a corrosive guilt. A guilt that turns to bitterness. A bitterness that turns to anger. An anger that, that makes me want to be a social warrior. But not... In a biblical way, where there is a sense of the heart of God and a, and a justice that, as in the scriptures, is in the Hebrew is mishpat, which means to give someone what is right, to, to do what is right, to give what is owed and proper, uh, but to just sort of get angry and bitter and, 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 and develop a bit of a savior complex. And then from that savior complex, develop a superiority complex. And then be angry at the people who don't share my passion for the poor. We can fall into these sort of dishes but these ditches but we have so many examples through through scripture where god's tenderness and his care for the poor he he's calling us to this it's all throughout the new the, the old testament number 16 and joshua 7 and first and second samuel this call for the people of god to care and when you get to daniel 9 he does something that we would as moderns find unthinkable and in daniel 9 daniel is repenting for things that he didn't do. He's repenting for things that his forefathers had done. And now I'm not getting into any sort of right or left partisan politics this morning. I'm not going to talk that way. I'm just reporting to you the heart of God, which cuts both through the right and the left. There are elements of the wisdom of God that can actually be found in both the right and the left. If we're willing to look, if you're a person who lives in the lonely middle, you can, you can find things to affirm in both the right and the left. But the, but the heart of God and the call of God, it just cuts through our modern ideas of justice. And there is just this softness and this tenderness where, even in Daniel 9, we're cognizant of the fact that you are living uh, a life on the, that has been framed, at the very least, by injustices perhaps in the past. And so there is a softness and there is a tenderness as, as he has repented about that. And as I had mentioned earlier, by the time you get to the book of Amos... Um, things, had, things had become terrible and the uh, commercial practices were, were unbelievable and the wages were so low they were laughable and all these things were happening and God is disgusted by it. And the disgust that God communicates is not to the, the Canaanites and to the broader culture. The disgust is with his people that they've somehow become calloused. And so there's an Old Testament scholar, his name is Bruce Waukee, and he... Um, describes the call of the people of God through the wisdom literature and the Proverbs in a very concise, practical principle. And here's what he says. He says, It seems to me that throughout the Proverbs, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, and the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And I think we see this again in the heart of God. Many of you are familiar with the gleaning laws in the Old Testament because it's one of those sort of bright shining spots that is nothing like the surrounding culture in the ancient world where God commanded his, his people not to glean the corners of their fields but it will allow the poor to go and to have the dignity of work and to work and to glean 
And, uh, but the significance of that, not gleaning to the corners, was that it, it, it does something that doesn't fit into modern categories of pure capitalism or pure socialism. Because in pure capitalism, you own all your stuff. And the, and the, the, the capitalist purist would say, this is all actually mine. And I can choose to be generous and to give some of it. But in the heart of God and in the wisdom of God, God says, actually, it's not actually all yours at all. I'm commanding you to leave a portion of it. Uh, and he's saying, don't glean the corners because that's for the poor. And when God says it's for the poor, he's insinuating there's an ownership there. This is for someone else. Therefore, you're stewarding everything you have. So as believers, we understand that we're stewards and not owners. So it doesn't fit neatly into the, if you're a capitalist purist. But over on the other side, before all the socialists go, yeah, get them. Uh, God does, also does not command to say, divide up the whole, divide it all up. Nobody owns anything. This isn't your land. Divide it all up equally there. Uh, that's not in the command either. Um, it's you enjoy this and flourish and allow for societal flourishing. Um, but also we're not taking away your, your, your property from you. So you can see that it doesn't fit neatly any, anywhere. So for us as believers to want to have a, a heart for God's justice, we have to go beyond... Um, uh, we have to sift through the white noise of modern conversation. And the first question you and I ought to be asking to ourselves is, uh, what is our posture? Is it love and care and tenderness? How does my belief in eternity shape the way that I look at my resources of my money and my time? These sorts of things. I'm not going to relate to everything the way my neighbor relates to it, because frankly, they think that we're here for the blink of an eye, and then when we die, we cease to exist. And, you know, if the sun goes supernova like all suns do, then at some point in the future... All of human existence is culminating in irrelevance anyways. So you're going to think a lot differently about your resources than you do if you believe in the resurrection, as, as we do. It's going to reframe things for us in a big way. So, for all these reasons I've mentioned, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 11, the poor will always be with you. Now, he doesn't say that in the sense that the, the church is to be indifferent to the poor and say, yeah, the poor are always going to be with us, so who cares? But it would also be pretty arrogant for me to have the sermon go in a direction that's like, guys, we're going to end poverty. Because Jesus didn't say that. So it seems to me ill-advised that I should take that tone. But it also seems if I look at the life of Jesus, it would also be ill-advised to say all that matters is talking about salvation and justification and living righteous and holy lives and walking in obedience and not really caring about the, the poor in the city because after all, the reason they're there is they weren't diligent. Proverbs says so. Right? Like, so both of those seem to me to be ill-advised directions to go. So Jesus says the poor will always be with you for a reason. We're living in the brokenness of this world. The old creation is rumbling along. And yet, you and I are called to wake up every day, live more and more into the new creation, and uh, to wake up and desire to nudge the world in a godly, holy direction. But we don't do that with the Savior complex because we're not the Savior. And we know that we won't bring societal renewal and, and renewal to the city. We can't bring it. Christ the King will bring it with his return, and it will not happen before then. However, between then and then, we're just not sort of indifferent. Uh, we have to work within all of these broken systems, and uh, regardless of where we all land in this room, uh, politically, we all lean in all sorts of different directions, and that's fine. We have, reasons, we have thoughtful reasons for why we've all done that. But when we come in this room and gather in here, uh, the core to our faith and the driving force behind the lives that we live uh, is not... Uh, the human wisdom of our particular political leanings. It is the, the wisdom of the scripture being shaped by the very grace of God. So let's move on to the grace of God. Let's talk about that as we close. The, the, the grace of justification 
and how it shapes our justice. The doctrine of justification says we did not earn our salvation. The doctrine of justification at bottom says we are recipients of scandalous and undeserved grace. That's the doctrine of justification by faith and grace alone. And so that is going to shape the way that we think about um, the poor. There's a retired prof from Yale. He was a religious studies prof. His name is Nicholas Wolsterstoff. And he framed it this way. He said, you know, you often look through the Old Testament and you find what he called the quartet of the vulnerable. Every time the word justice is used, uh, even as I'm saying it now, some of you are like, ah, you should have given me a trigger warning for this sermon. because. But I'm talking about biblical justice, mishpat, where every time just, the word justice is used in Scripture, it is often connected to the quartet of the vulnerable. The widow, the orphan, the poor, the refugee. I mean, almost without fail, whenever you go to texts that are talking about justice, and it culminates in a beautiful text, which you're familiar with in Micah, which says, uh, what is it that God wants but to uh, love justice and to do mercy? This connection of the mishpat and the chesed. Mishpat being the justice. What is right? What are people owed? What is the right thing to do? The mishpat with the chesed, the, the grace, the undeserved grace. So the what we have received from God, reframing our way of thinking about those who are in need in our city. So if you look back to chapter 14 and verse 31 for a second, I read this text. It says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but the one who is generous to the needy honors him. Notice that very intentional poetic contrast between an insult to God and honoring God. Is the posture of my heart, my mind, my way of thinking about the needy in our city does it honor God or is it an insult to God? Is the way in which I relate to my finances and my time uh, honoring God or is it insulting in the, the way that this plays out? Is there some sort of a disconnect? Think of, the, think of the book of James, that very familiar text where it says, faith without works is dead. And what James is getting at is not to say you're saved by your works, which would be ridiculous. He, him and Paul were on Team Jesus, so he's never said that. But what he is making no apology for, if you read it, what James says in James 2, is if your claim is that you're saved by faith and grace alone. And that claim of salvation, or that understanding of grace, produces no good works. And you read through James, and James is going to get into um, what he calls true religion for the, for, the, for the widow and the orphan, right? So he's using the wisdom literature, and he's going something ought to, in your save, understanding of saving faith, saving grace justification, something ought to work its way out so that there's not a disconnect between your lips and your lives. So when we think about Jesus and the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus being the perfect interpretation of God, Jesus saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? Jesus was deeply moved right, by the poor. His life is marked by this caring, this compassion. And in Matthew 25, when he gives a parable about his judgment that is coming, he gives a parable of the sheep and the goats. And the sheep and the goats is not, well, the church is the sheep and everybody who's not in church is the goats. The sheep and the goats, if you read the parable, is it's all the church. And if you drive by a field of sheep and goats and they're all in a big pile, they all kind of look the same. You've got to like go through and weed out the sheep and the goats. And that's not your job. That's not my job. I praise Jesus. It's not my job to, as the pastor of this church, to decide who the sheep and the goats are in here. Not my job. 
My job is to be as faithful as I can with the scriptures. And Jesus Christ, the king, the one who will return, he'll separate the sheep and the goats. And when Jesus uh, gives this, this parable, he says, well, there's a way that you're going to know this. And as it walks out, he says, you, you saw me when I was uh, hungry and you fed me and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you befriended me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you came and ministered to me. I was in prison and you visited me. And both the sheep and the goats say, when did we see that? But what's interesting is the righteous are like, when, when did we see you, Jesus? I mean, I remember caring for these people and I remember living a life of generosity towards the needy. But when did I see you? And Jesus is like, yeah, that, that, this is one and the same. You've not insulted the maker. You've honored him. And then the, the goats, the, the, right, the, the unrighteous, they say the same thing. Hey, when did we see you? But it's not because they were busy loving people. It's because there was total indifference. They, did, they, they weren't moved by it. They didn't even see it. Callous towards it. You know, the application for this sermon is not change the world. Um, you can't change the world. When I was a youth pastor, I made t-shirts for the youth group like back in the 90s. And I had like this, the Christian fish, and I put some big sunglasses on them, and I was like, yeah. And then on the back of the t-shirt, it said, change the world. And one of the, and I was all, and could you imagine 20-year-old uh, me who didn't have the gospel at all, but all I understood was like to just run after the Christian life. It was, my sermons were crushing. There was a lot of laughter, but I was exhausting people left, right, and center, because grace was nowhere to be found. And this mom comes up to me, and she says, change the world. She's like, don't you feel like you're putting a lot of pressure on these kids? Like, they're in grade 7 and 8. And I'm like, I'm like, she doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. We, we can't change the world, but we can live a local life. We can live a local life. We cannot glean the corners of our fields. We can have time and breathing space in the schedule to care in various ways, whether it's personally or corporately. And perhaps you are part of those Ray of Hope meal teams and you're doing that. And as that team grows and as we develop more leaders, uh, we want to do more and more of that in the city. We're not going to reinvent the wheel here as a small church. We want to build bridges and be a part of caring for the poor. But some of you might not be able to do that. You can't glean your time in that way, but you can glean of your finances and you can do that. Or you can be in the street and you can be very directly caring for people, you know, making sure there's money in the glove box of your car. Or if you're like me and you never have money, I end up having to... People ask me for money, and I'm like, give me 10 minutes, I'll go in here. What do you want to eat? i got to go in, I'll buy something, I'll come back. Do that all the time, because I'm basically cashless. But to posture ourselves in such a way that we are living this local life, that we can care, that we can give in small but meaningful ways. And I suppose you could argue that in that sense you're changing the world, but I just don't want to be grandiose about it. I think it's important that as believers we live small lives, small meaningful lives, that we live local lives, that we care about our, our, our neighbors and this, this matters um, to us. Because, you know, there's a temptation in all of this conversation around caring for the poor of putting them in the category of the deserving poor. Right? Well, I don't want to just give money because what are they going to do with it? Why are you worried about that? What brought them to this point where they're on the street asking for money? What would it take for you to be in that point? Don't be the judge and jury over what they're going to do with the money. Well, they're going to go and they're going to buy booze with it. That's what you were going to do. So relax. Just give them the $10 and don't worry about it. We don't want to think about them like the deserving poor because if Jesus took that position, you and I wouldn't be here right now. You and I are not the deserving poor. That's the doctrine of justification. 
It's for the poor in spirit. Not the middle class in spirit who are like, you know, I'm doing all right. I wasn't born dead in my sin. I was born kind of sick, needing a little pick-me-up. Preach the law, preacher. Give me the third reading of the law. I'll keep the law. I'll save myself through my holiness and my obedience. Every single one of you would fail dismally. I would fail worse than you because I know my own heart and mind and I don't know yours. So the doctrine of justification is, puts us in the position of the, we are the poor in spirit. There's no deserving poor. There's no middle class in spirit. There's no rich in spirit. There's no, yeah, thanks, I'm good. I don't need the divine help. It's for the poor in spirit. It, that is not, that is humbling, but it makes us so confident in the love and the grace of God. Jesus did not come for the deserving poor. You and I, we mooch grace every single week. Earlier I was talking about what would it take for you and I to be begging on the street. We are grace mooches. I care about my obedience to Christ, and that should matter. Otherwise, why in the world am I pastoring Christ's church if I don't care about the life that I'm living, right? Obviously. But I, I don't come to this table every week for show. I need, to, I need God's grace for my sin. And I, I'm coming with thankfulness because I am the undeserving poor. But more than that, I come celebrating and you come celebrating because our inheritance is not something that is on the brink of being lost. It is secured. And this is so key to the doctrine of justification and how it reframes our justice because you and I are not coming to the Lord's table to eat and to drink with our fingers crossed hoping that we don't lose our salvation on the inconsistent attempts at obedience. We know that our salvation is kept on the basis of Christ and his perfect obedience. And because that is true, that reframes our justice. That reframes our attitude towards the poor. There's no deserving poor. There's just the poor. And that's you and I. And so in our inheritance that we celebrate and that in the end we don't deserve the new heavens, the new earth, the restoration of all things, the restoration of this world, the restoration of our bodies, the life that we wish we had that this is evading us in this world when Christ comes and returns and restores all things. We don't deserve it, but it's ours. So we're desperate. We come to this Lord's table with empty hands. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make us rich. May we go out as ministers of this gospel, people of generous justice, and may it flow through our hands. Let's pray.